Hi there, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Jonathan Alter, the author of His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. This is his fourth book. He was also a longtime columnist for Newsweek. He's a political commentator on MSNBC and is also a filmmaker and Emmy-winning producer. Jonathan, thanks so much for being here. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Jimmy Carter, when people say his name in conversation today, you get two reactions. One is, boy, he was a weak president. The other is, boy, what a remarkable post-presidency. Today, though, we're going to focus on his presidency and analyze whether he deserves that response. You say 35 years after working as an intern in the White House speech writing office, you found yourself drawn to a perplexing leader in hopes of painting a portrait of perhaps the most misunderstood president in American history. First of all, Jonathan, why is the conventional wisdom about Jimmy Carter unfair? Because I think what it does is that it takes the uh, very memorable and dramatic events of the last two years of his presidency, especially the Iran hostage crisis, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union, the brutal economic conditions, and these swamped Carter, and he was crushed by Ronald Reagan when he ran for re-election in 1980. And journalists uh, of the time and, you know, civilians who are interested, they tend to judge our presidents by how they do politically. And I argue that how they do politically is only one part of the assessment. It's an important part, but I see Carter as a political failure, but a substantive and often far-sighted success with a legislative record that people don't understand at all. It is one of the uh, better legislative records of, of any recent president, in part because unlike Clinton and Obama, he had a Democratic Congress for four years. They served two terms, but they only had a Democratic Congress for two years. So, you know, for example, there were 14 major pieces of environmental legislation that he signed when he was president, uh, and it made him arguably the greatest environmental president since uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And on, you know, energy, my book starts with him putting solar panels on the roof of the White House, which I think people kind of know about, and they know that Reagan took them down. Um, but that was just symbolic of a whole series of things that he did uh, to put us on a on a path to energy independence and a cleaner environment from, you know, the first fuel economy standards, the first toxic waste cleanup, the first funding of green energy, the first regulations that allowed utilities to use green energy that incentivize them to do so. Uh, the list just goes on and on and on, doubling the size of the National Park Service with uh, the protection of 105 million acres in, in Alaska and many other environmental achievements and many other things on the domestic side that we can talk about and a foreign policy record that is one of the best in recent American history, which yeah. we can talk about. And certainly you talk about the Camp David Accords being one of the most longest, uh, being one of the long lasting achievements of his presidency that has essentially kept significant war out of that region for a long, long time. Um, but let's start with his election as president in 1976. Uh, some extraordinary things stand out and you mentioned these. He was the first from the deep South since 1848. He was the last Democrat to win until 1992, of course. Um, he was also the first D.C. outsider um, that I counted, at least since Eisenhower, but I guess we could debate uh, some of that. Maybe it even goes further back than that. You also say that he was the last conservative Democrat, but also the beginning of a party that would no longer accept equivocation on civil rights. So that's an interesting contradiction there. So explain why Carter is straddling all these worlds upon his victory. 
Well, um, he's a you know he's a transitional uh, figure. Uh, just to geek out for a second on the precedents, uh, Eisenhower was uh, General MacArthur's uh, adjutant, his you know his deputy uh, in Washington uh, for a pretty significant period of time. Um, so he had that Washington bureaucratic experience. Carter was actually the first one without any Washington experience. Uh, since uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was elected in, in 1912. Um, but just to your question, um, the Carter, uh, I'm not sure it's fair to call him a conservative. He was conservative on some things like uh, balancing the budget um, and very liberal and progressive on other things. So it's another reason people had a hard time getting a fix on him. Uh, and in a lot of ways, he was a speed bump. His election was a speed bump in the transition of the country uh, from the uh, great society, liberalism of the 60s to Reaganism. Uh, and he kind of was a Band-Aid on a ruptured Democratic Party and a, uh, uh, you know, a country that was uh, moving right. So he... And he was a historic figure in that uh, he was, uh, you know, the face of the New South, uh, even though he had run a kind of a dog whistle campaign to get elected governor of Georgia in 1970. By 1976, he uh, was um, an important historical figure even before he became president, because in the 1976 Florida Democratic primary, he beat George Wallace, who was running for president for the third time, and ended Wallace's political career. And that set him on the course to the nomination and the presidency. They also got me thinking about racism in our political parties. And after Carter dispatched Wallace in 1976, that ended the racist wing of the Democratic Party. And, and basically, you know, the Democratic Party, were they were the original racists. If you go back to the formation of the party in the 1790s, or you could call it the 1820s, however one wants to look at the true origins of the Democratic Party, it was racist right through. And the reason that the South was solidly Democratic is because that was the racist party. You know, there were racist Republicans, but they were they were the party of Lincoln, you know. So then there's this role reversal that takes place right when Carter is going into politics. And after uh, after he purged basically segregationists from the party, then that vote, many of whom had voted for Carter for governor, they went into the Republican Party en masse. So today we only have one political party that has a racist wing. If you're a racist, there's no place for you in the Democratic Party. That's a pretty important historical achievement before he actually accomplishes anything in office. How was his impending presidency viewed at the time? Take us back to 1976, uh, and then I guguess towards the transition in 1977. Does uh, he represent the beginning of a new era, one without Nixon or Vietnam, um, led by this kind of ambitious man with the common touch, or was he seen as representative of stale leadership that was clinging to the Cold War and the New Deal? It was not the latter. Um, he really, uh, uh, even though he launched his fall campaign from Warm Springs, Georgia, where where Franklin Roosevelt spent so much time, he really didn't have the New Deal in his bones. And that was pretty clear, and it was one of the reasons he was alienated from the Democratic Congress, which was full of of uh, Democratic politicians who had, you know, the New Deal was their mother's milk. Many of them had been children, and, and uh, actually uh, Tip O'Neill, who was the new speaker when Carter came in, who he didn't get along with very well, he had uh, his first campaign he worked in was 1928. So he, he genuinely had the New Deal in his bones. Carter did not. So there was nothing stale about Carter, but he was an outsider and hard to peg and hard to like. Uh, 
because he wasn't a schmoozer, you know, and he did certain things early on to antagonize uh, the Democratic Congress. So, um, and that that clung to him. So even though he ended up getting a lot through, he was seen as a failure in his relations with the Democratic Congress. I think unfairly seen as that, although there's plenty of blame to go around. And Carter did some dumb things like canceling all these water projects, uh, which was good for the environment, but uh, was politically ham-handed. And he made a whole series of other decisions that, that were the right decisions, especially if you're an engineer like Carter trying to actually fix a problem, but they were not necessarily the politically smart decisions. And so just to circle back to your original question, um, he he became president because of Watergate. So he was a breath of fresh air and honesty and integrity after Nixon. He, he beat Gerald Ford, Nixon's vice president, who obviously wasn't a crook, but the stench of Watergate was still strong. And Ford's pardon of Nixon, uh, although Carter didn't exploit it, was a kind of a sleeper issue in the 1976 campaign. But when he's, you know, he was both made and unmade by the post-Watergate press. So the press corps, like, loved him in 76. And I, uh, you know, the cover of my book is an Andy Warhol image of Jimmy Carter. And one of the reasons why... I really wanted that on the cover as I wanted to tell people how cool Carter was in 1976. And he was tight with, you know, Hunter Thompson, who loved him and helped put him on the map. And, uh, you know, friendly with Bob Dylan and the Allman Brothers. And so there was a cultural wave that Carter caught in 1976 that helped take him to the presidency, though he won by a much smaller margin than Joe Biden did. And of course, times were different then and Ford conceded early the next morning. Uh, that's certainly different. Uh, today, uh, the image of a president wearing a sweater, uh, of Jimmy Carter wearing the sweater, walking around the White House, turning off light switches and asking Americans to keep the thermostats down uh, has become, kind of become this caricature of Jimmy Carter. But one of the things you argue is that at the time, um, it, it was relatively popular and that um, he basically says we have to have an unpleasant talk and his approval ratings, you say, never really took a hit until a little bit later on. So talk about this first issue that he tries to tackle. Uh, it's energy. Um, you say oil imports were up, domestic production was down. He makes a big deal of trying to make Americans self sufficient. And you say he was well ahead of the curve when it comes to things like global warming. Um, and as you said before, setting you know the example of putting uh, solar panels on the White House. So how does he tackle energy and what went right and what went wrong? Well, um, just to start with the issue that people are most concerned about now, um, I found in his papers from when he was governor uh, in 1970 two article in the journal Nature about what was called then carbon dioxide pollution. It wasn't even called global warming yet, much less climate change. And Carter had underlined it, you know, and put stars next to certain points that the scientist authors were making. So while other politicians were out playing golf, you know, Jimmy Carter liked to read scientific journals. It's kind of unimaginable. <laughs> Now. And so he, he was aware of the problem from a very early point. When he fashioned his energy uh, policy, it was in response to the Arab oil embargoes. And, you know, uh, energy prices, oil prices went up 14 fold, not 14 percent, 14 fold over a decade. And and so they had us over a barrel in the, in the cliche of the day and the Arabs did. And so Initially, Carter wasn't concerned about climate change. In fact, he was pretty aggressive on, uh, on coal production because uh, the issue was energy independence. And uh, this is you know what the Carter Doctrine was about free flow of oil in the Persian Gulf, uh, and that was connected to uh, what 
the way we responded to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And there were Cold War dimensions that came into play, uh, but they, they were intimately connected to the fact that we were hugely reliant on oil from the Middle East uh, in ways that are almost unimaginable today. But just to finish up on the climate change point, um, because of his respect for science and uh, belief in the importance of looking ahead uh, on the environment, he responded favorably to every report that he got from the Council on Environmental Quality, his White House Office on the Environment. And the EPA and the White House did a large number of things uh, on uh, on pollution in the environment. And at the very end of his term, he received a report from the uh, Council on Environmental Quality with an action plan on what was then starting to be called global warming, although it still was an issue that nobody outside of the scientific community knew about. And the recommendations that he signed off on just six weeks before leaving office uh, were identical to the recommendations of the Paris Climate Agreement of 2016. And so this lends a tragic dimension to his loss to Ronald Reagan in 1980, because without question, he would have begun to address climate change in the early 1980s. You can imagine what the uh, effects of that might have been on, uh, uh, on the world's ability to at least begin addressing the issue. In terms of achievements, so he, when I started my research, I didn't even think that a Carter energy bill had ever passed. Uh, it had passed, but in pieces. And so initially it went through the House, but it, it had a lot of problems in the Senate. Then it passed the Senate in, in pieces. And he, so he never really got credit for what, at the end of his time in office, was the first coherent energy policy this country ever had. And it had many dimensions to it, some of which I've already, I've already mentioned, uh, some of which didn't work, like, uh, you know, uh, the Synthetic Fuels Corporation, which was kind of the founding of what eventually became fracking, but at the time, you know, wasn't working that well. And, and other parts of it, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, say, you know, fuel economy standards. I was going to say, what about the appliance uh, stuff? Well, the, I mean, there's so many things, right? Just labeling up the energy efficiency of appliances, which we now take for granted and which have dramatically improved over the last 40 years. The energy efficiency of, of appliances is light years better than it used to be. And a lot of that starts with the labeling, which began in the Carter administration. And then there were other things they did to encourage energy efficiency, or even just another labeling issue. And again, as I said, there's, there's, you know, 14 pieces of legislation that related to this whole area. It never used to be that you had to label the toxic uh, ingredients of your products. There was no requirement. Uh, you know, so you didn't know, you know, if there's a can of paint, you don't know. I was going to say, that. drink a little motor oil and see how that works out. Uh, you know, so so Car Carter was constantly uh, introducing things to Congress, bills to Congress that were very far-sighted, but at the time were kind of laughed off because people preferred to focus on, you know, the the more trivial things, lust in my heart, the Playboy interview, or he's attacked by a killer rabbit, you know, and the the press is going to naturally like those kinds of stories. He wasn't hugely likable as a president. He obviously wasn't nearly as good a communicator as Ronald Reagan. So all of these things hurt him over time. And then he was swamped by events that were beyond his control. Uh, but there was a point to your your early question, in 1977, he was up in the 70s in his approval rating. And the, two years later, he was in the 20s. So the fluctuations then are just 
so different from what we experience today. And, yeah, and I mean, I think Donald Trump's approval rating was between 39 and 44 for four years and, and didn't move no matter which poll you looked at. Right. Jimmy um, Carter between 26 and 73. Unthinkable today. Um, uh, there are two big positions that completely changed under Carter. Uh, neither of these jobs, and this is sort of the in, in, uh, nitty gritty of how the White House operates, but neither of these jobs that changed under Carter um, are given actual jobs in the executive branch by the Constitution. There's the role of first lady and the role of vice president. Um, you say that Jimmy Carter gave these two uh, positions a complete makeover during his administration. Let's talk about First Lady first, Rosalind Carter. Uh, you say that they had always been a team, the Carters meaning, um, but their relationship in the White House was new and historic. So how does he include the First Lady in ways that previous presidents had not? Um, so uh, I'm really glad you raised this because uh, Carter uh, revolutionized the role of First Lady, revolutionized vice presidency and then as we all know revolutionized the post presidency so uh he met rosalind carter 93 years ago his mother uh uh lillian carter uh, was a nurse uh, carter was raised by a white supremacist father and a, a mother who took care of black patients and then he really had a third parent an illiterate uh woman farmhand named rachel clark who gave gave him his love of nature and uh, and his uh, much of his spirituality. But uh, Lillian Carter delivered Rosalind Smith uh, in Plains, Georgia, and three days later brought along her three year old son, Jimmy, not yet three year old son to see the new baby. Uh, they didn't start going out until um, he was in the Navy and they were married in 1946 and she Rosalind is an enormously formidable woman and I I uh, spent a lot of time with her as well as Jimmy Carter uh, and she um, she gave me the rather steamy love letters that he wrote her uh, from C one of them I was like having to fan my face off man that yeah. was that was a steamy letter yeah no no historian had ever known about them much less seen them before my book, and they are easily the steamiest letters ever written between a future president and future first lady. So, but not, but just to stop you real quick, uh, worse than Harding. Um, <laughs> now, this is not a pre really that, interesting question. You mean what Harding wrote to Nan Britton? Yes, mistress. Yeah. Now that's yeah, not a future well, president and all that. No, that was I said yeah. between a president right, you, and a first lady, not a president and his mistress. You qualified but, it. <laughs> point, point taken. Yeah. <laughs> what, what Harding wrote about what he and Nan did in the closet, in the broom closet, is a little steamier. So we don't have to talk about Jerry here, right? We don't have but, to. <laughs> but um, so, but you know, the thing about Rosalind Carter is, I, I never found a single person who had anything critical to say about her. Usually the aides to politicians, they just suffer the politician's wife because the wife is often interfering and, you know, making things more difficult. And that's even true of ones they like, like uh, Michelle Obama, you know, there's basically any, any White House except Carter's who has complaints uh, about the First Lady, at least at some point. So Rosalind's enormously formidable. She is his partner in every respect, um, despite you know some ups and downs in their in their seventy three year marriage, seventy four year marriage now. Um, but uh, when he becomes president, he decides to let her sit in on cabinet meetings. But that was just the public part of it. She. Um, at one point, um, Hugh Sidey of Time Magazine uh, uh, was re sort of recording what would happen when there was a national security issue. And the president would say, get me uh, Rosalind Sy, uh, that's Cy Vance, the Secretary of State, Zbig, that's Big New Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor, Ham, Hamilton Jordan, by that time Chief of Staff. And Hugh Sidey of Time Magazine said, note the order. She was his first advisor. 
And she did many things that Eleanor Roosevelt never did. She was actually a diplomat on his behalf. He had a very successful diplomatic uh, mission to South America. Um, she uh, got the first mental health legislation through Congress, working very closely with Ted Kennedy on that, who later you know, had this operatic uh, conflict with Jimmy Carter and eventually ran against him uh, uh, in the 1980 primaries. Um, um, she and Claude Pepper transformed the way retirement works in the United States and basically extended the retirement age. She and the wife of uh, Senator Dale Bumpers, a woman named Betty Bumpers, they basically went all over the country and convinced state legislatures to require inoculations before children could enter school, which is, again, something from the Carter administration that we take taken for granted had, now. Yeah, totally take for granted. Um, and then, you know, in the post presidency, she's been very much a part of, of everything that uh, he's done. So she was the politically savvy one and he was more ham handed politically and she would sometimes get exasperated at his uh, refusal to do the more politically advantageous thing. And we, we uh, Mrs. Carter and I had some very interesting conversations about that over the last few years. She also, she, I went and, help, and uh, built a, uh, helped build, barely helped build a, a house for Habitat for Humanity with the Carters in, in 2016 in Memphis. And, you know, he would sort of, you know, uh, scare me by coming over and telling me I wasn't hammering properly. She was a very good hammerer as well and very, uh, you know, important on the particular house we were building. She was a, a little nicer to me <laughs> when it came to <laughs> instruction on how to what uh, I should do on the work site. Th there's, uh, then there's the vice president, Walter Mondale. Today, we're used to VPs being heavily, heavily involved. Dick Cheney, Joe Biden, Mike Pence, they've all taken on very large roles in their respective administrative uh, administrations. But you argue that Walter Mondale is sort of the OG when it comes to super involved VP. And I guess if you look back in that time period or just a little bit before, um, certainly, you know, you would say that Lyndon Johnson was not a major part of the Kennedy administration. You would say that Eisenhower barely even knew Richard Nixon and said, he, I think, didn't he say he needed a week to come up with something that he said that he'd done uh, over uh, the eight years they were in power? And then certainly FDR, um, <laughs> I think he had three or four VPs and uh, was, you know, rotating them on through. So uh, talk about why Mondale is sort of the original super involved VP. Yeah, just on FDR for a second. I wrote a book about FDR. Yes, you did, and his right. president was John Nance Garner, who said uh, the vice presidency wasn't work, worth a bucket of warm piss. And piss was changed to spit for family newspapers. But that pretty much summarized the status of the vice presidency until Carter. So Walter Mondale was a senator from Minnesota, and he was Hubert Humphrey's protege. And he had seen how Humphrey had been humiliated by LBJ when Humphrey was vice president. And so when Carter interviewed him, uh, when he was the Democratic nominee, presumptive Democratic nominee, you know, Mondale said, look, I'm not really interested uh, unless uh, I have a real role. And Carter, uh, Mondale wrote him a memo on what he wanted, and Carter made good on all, all of these things. And there were, he had many uh, requests, um, and some of them very important, like an office in the West Wing. <laughs> Before that, they were in what's now the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. And as Mondale told me, you know, if you're over there, you might as well be in Baltimore in terms of your ability to be involved in decision making in the West Wing. And uh, and Carter also put him in the chain of command. And Mondale told me, you know, that got the attention of the Pentagon. Before that, the Pentagon just ignored the vice president because the vice president wasn't in the chain of command. They had no reason 
to pay any heed at all to the vice president. Uh, and then he, um, he gave them substantive things to do. They started the tradition of having lunch every week, which every president, except maybe Trump, has followed. Uh, and uh, it, it wasn't always a smooth sailing. Uh, things got so bad in the Carter administration in the summer of 1979 that Mondale thought seriously about resigning as vice president. Uh, he would have, uh, unless you include Agnew, he would have been the first one, I think, since uh, John C. Calhoun to resign that office. Um, but they developed a very good relationship and Carter had the security, the sense of security to put up with a, uh, an active vice president. Um, and the vice presidency hasn't been the same since. What was like, uh, what was day-to-day -day life like in the white house during the Carter administration? Uh, Donald Trump is famous for watching TV for uh, long hours, getting to the oval office in the late morning. Barack Obama was known for working until about 6.30 when it was time to have dinner with Michelle and the kids. Uh, George W. Bush started early, but also ended early. Bill Clinton started somewhat early and ended really, really early in the morning. Uh, how did Jimmy Carter run things? Uh, it was described to me as quiet toll, a quiet toil, quiet toil, uh, just enormously hard work all the time. Uh, and uh, Carter uh, would often be in his study off the Oval Office, uh, you know, the place where where Bill Clinton met with Monica Lewinsky. And uh, he would be in there listening to classical music. Then after hours when he was in the residence, he listened more to country music uh, and rock and roll. Uh, he has very eclectic musical tastes and jazz. He had uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Vladimir Horowitz, the Allman Brothers, they all, Willie Nelson, they were all at the White House at one time or another. So the music was a very important part of Carter's day. Uh, he, he made some mistakes in the way he organized the White House. He, at first, he decided not to have a chief of staff, which was a big mistake. Uh, and he thought he would have this kind of spokes on a wheel approach where a number of senior aides would have access to him at the center. And... Uh, Everybody kind of knew even before they started, this was a bad idea. Dick Cheney was the outgoing chief of staff for Gerald Ford. And he gave uh, Hamilton Jordan and uh, some of the others, when they said, well, we're gonna have spokes on the wheel organization. He went into his closet and he brought out a bent bicycle wheel. And he said, we tried this, this is what happened. And he gave it to them as a gift, but it still took uh, a couple years before Carter finally agreed that he needed a chief of staff. Uh, so, um, and then there were other mistakes that related to his being uh, a little too proud of being an outsider and not wanting to uh, suck up to the Georgetown, Washington establishment. Uh, and it was reciprocated. There was a lot of anti-Southern bias in their attitude toward Carter. Um, so he he just didn't get um, the gears of government uh, going in ways that he he might have. It actually started at the inauguration when, for the gala, um, Tip O'Neill got ticked off uh, because he didn't get enough tickets. Uh, so there were things like that that caused problems early on. But having said that, he got an awful lot through and an awful lot. Uh, accomplished that uh, was overshadowed by these sorts of stories. Also, the, like the stories of the rivalry between Secretary of State Vance and National Security Advisor Brzezinski. Whole forests died to print the newspapers the, chronicling their rivalry because the assumption was that Carter was a rube who you know, wasn't making up his own mind. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's actually a very tough-minded uh, president who uh, was in many ways his own secretary of state. Let's talk a little bit about foreign policy. Uh, the 1978 Camp David Accords, as I said earlier, you say are really his crowning achievement. Uh, you say he did more for Israeli security than any president since Truman. 
You say it was the most important peace treaty anywhere in the world since the end of World War II. So just briefly explain the deal that was made, uh, and then more importantly, explain how this peanut farmer with no foreign policy experience winds up becoming immersed in this policy. It's a great question. First of all, like when people hear that I think he was the greatest president for the security of the state of Israel since Harry Truman, especially, you know, my fellow Jews might go, what? What are you talking about? Uh, but my point there is that deeds are more important than words. I mean, we know that Carter uh, uh, was the most pro-Palestinian president we've ever had, even more so after he left the presidency. And uh, he uh, got fewer votes than any other, uh, uh, Jewish votes than any other Democrat, uh, I think, who's run for president in the modern era. But um, the Egyptian army was the only military force capable of driving Israel into the sea and destroying the Israeli army. And, you know, they fought four wars with Arab nations and, and the uh, Egyptians were at the heart of those attacks on, on Israel. And there hasn't been a shot fired in anger between Israel and Egypt in the last 42 years, more than more, for, it's 42 years since Camp David, uh, so uh, 45 years. Um, and um, the achievement, uh, which is what led me to uh, write the book uh, initially, um, just seeing the virtuosity of what he achieved there made me realize there had to be more to this story than inept president, great ex-president. But I actually don't think it's his greatest achievement. Uh, I, I think it's one of his greatest achievements. Um, and we can talk about why I look at some other things uh, in an even more positive way. Um, so he, um, he had first gone to what he describes as the Holy Land when he was governor and he developed, developed kind of an obsession with it. Um, and then when Anwar Sadat came to Washington, uh, they established uh, a really close, intimate, personal relationship, uh, which he did not have with Menachem Begin. Uh, but Begin nonetheless, you know, called Camp David the Jimmy Carter uh, Accords uh, because there simply would not have been peace between those two nations without Carter's attention to detail, which he was much mocked for. Several times during the 13 days at Camp David in the fall of 1978, one or both parties packed their bags and threatened to leave, and it was only Carter's skill that saw it through. Then afterwards, the whole deal fell apart, and six months later, at great risk, over the objection of all of his advisors who felt he was just shining a light on the failure of Camp David. The deal had fallen apart. And uh, the, his advisors said, okay, you know, it fell apart. You got to deal with other things. Let it go. If you go and try to put it together and fail, you're going to look really inept. But Carter was uh, driven to do so. And he went back to Israel and Egypt in March of 1979. And he put the whole thing back together again with, you know, masking tape and bailing wire. Part uh, six of your book is called Swamped. Uh, it sort of reminded me of um, the way the Hamilton play ended, where there's this sort of grand first half, and then halftime comes and things get, things start to go a bit downhill. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you saw Hamilton, or, yeah. or maybe you didn't, but it reminded me of, of Hamilton. Um, uh so let's talk about two things. One is the Malay speech or the so-called Malay speech. Of course, he never used that term. And then let's get into Iran. So I don't know if you want to just take one on first. Uh, let's do you know the Malay's speech first. Why does he want to give a speech that confronts the problems that he and the country are having? Um, uh, I don't know who you quoted as saying it, but someone said that it was that no president since Lincoln was so honest with the American people. Of course, he doesn't use the word malaise, but that's how it's it's portrayed or that's how it's labeled. 
Um, so why does he want to give this speech? And then what does this attempt to calm everyone down reveal about his upbringing and who he is? Um, so uh, in 1979, um, his, his energy policy was still mostly stalled. And then for reasons beyond his control, there was a gas crisis. And you had um, motorists lined up uh, at gas stations. And uh, as John Updike wrote in one of his novels, you know, gas stations closed like somebody died. And, and this was a time when people's attract, Americans' attraction to their cars was a little bit like today's attraction to smartphones, right? <laughs> try to imagine. We're always on one, right? Right. Try to imagine not having your phone for like a few weeks, like how nuts you would go and how, especially if you could blame the president for that. So, you know, if you couldn't get any gas or just, you know, very little gas in many parts of the country, you were going to be really pissed off. And this is when Carter slipped down into the 20s, his approval rating. And so uh, he, he had just been abroad and he was told uh, while he was abroad that, uh, you know, he was, he, he signed the SALT II agreement uh, with Brezhnev. And then he, he went to, uh, which also wasn't popular because he was photographed kissing Brezhnev, which didn't go over well. That was Brezhnev's idea. Then he goes to the, <laughs> Far East, and he's told by his advisors at home, you've got to come home. This is a huge crisis. So he's going to deliver yet another speech on energy, and he cancels it. And he goes up to Camp David, and he has not just his advisors, but a broad collection of Americans to come up and tell him what's gone wrong with the country and what's gone wrong with his administration. And they were brutally candid with him. And, uh, you know, they'd say things like, you know, Mr. President, you're just managing the government. You're not leading. And what he did was he then gave this astonishing speech, which that was called the crisis of confidence speech. He did not use the word malaise, but that's what it was called, where he started out by just quoting a lot of this, this shade that people have been throwing on him at Camp David, like the one I just mentioned. You know, he quoted from, What's that? He said, you know, a Southern governor said, you're not, you're not a leader. And, and even more harsh comments, one after another. So people are watching the president doing this. Then he explains the context of all this and gives a really, really eloquent sermon on how America had lost its way in the 1970s. Uh, so first he says, I've lost my way. America has lost its way, and here's our way back. And then the second half of the speech is about energy. They were sort of stapled together. It was, that, that part of it didn't quite work. But the reaction to it was super positive. And he went up in the polls in the first couple of days. Then he made the second worst decision of his presidency after deciding... Uh, uh, later uh, that year to allow the Shah of Iran to come into the United States for medical treatment. And in the summer, he fires his cabinet. Uh, five members of his cabinet, uh, he accepts their resignation. So this looks to, you know, our allies and a lot of Americans like really unstable behavior. It doesn't seem unstable in the context of Trump, but at the time it's like, what's he doing? He's sacking his old cabinet? What the hell? And so he then plummets in the polls. I actually uh, witnessed some of that because I went back to visit my old friends in the speechwriting office the day after that happened. And Hendrik Hertzberg, who later wrote for The New Yorker, Rick Hertzberg, uh, had, was really happy when I first saw him because the reaction to the speech was positive. And then, you know, a couple days later, the roof caved in. And he, uh, so this became... Um, it's just impossible to imagine an American president giving that kind of speech now where he asks for sacrifice and he says we're in trouble and that he's made serious mistakes. And a year later, Dan Rather is interviewing him 
before the Democratic convention. And he asks him to grade himself. And like a political fool, he does it. And he says, well, I, I guess I give myself a B minus on that, a C plus on that. You know, so this is a level of accountability that is unimaginable now and and was not very helpful to him politically. So let's get into Iran. Um, what happens uh, as the hostages are taken? And, um, you know, just explain, I think one of the most fascinating things was that um, Carter basically also becomes a hostage to the crisis because he pledges to not campaign and to not essentially leave the White House as sort of an attempt to, I guess, portray that he was focused on them. But once you become too focused on them, then the hostage takers have you over a barrel. Exactly. So, you know, the context of it is that he initially is supportive of the Shah of Iran, even though he's a, he represses his people. Um, and this is hypocritical in the context of Carter's human rights policy, which I argue, you asked earlier whether Camp David was his greatest achievement. I actually think it was human rights. It was the first time in, arguably in world history, where uh, a major power uh, said that its foreign policy would be at least partly based on how other governments treated their own people. And it led to a democratic revolution around the world. And helped end the Cold War, as many conservatives admitted. But it was a hypocritical policy with a lot of holes in it. And because of the Cold War, we were supporting people like the Shah of Iran. The Shah is overthrown and flees Iran. Kissinger, Henry Kissinger and the Rockefellers and other members of the American foreign policy establishment start a lobbying campaign to get the Shah into the United States. And Carter's reaction at first is very negative. He actually says, fuck the Shah. And I, I asked Harold Brown not long before he died, who was Carter's defense secretary, you know, what did you think when he said that? And Brown confirmed that he had said that and, and you know, talked about how unusual it was to hear that word come out of Carter's mouth. And... Um, they um, tried to keep the Shah out. He was going from one country to another. And then um, Rockefeller's people pulled the wool over Carter's eyes by convincing the State Department that he could not be treated for his cancer in Mexico. So they let him in and he was treated at New York Hospital, stayed in the United States for a short time, but long enough that students in Tehran took over the American embassy there just uh, a few days after the Shah was admitted. Uh, and so then what you described is exactly what happened. At first, Americans rallied around Carter. And the same day the hostages were seized, November 4th, 1979, exactly one year before the 1980 election, the exact same day, Ted Kennedy, who at that point was 30 points ahead of Carter in the polls in the battle for the Democratic nomination. He gives an interview to Roger Mudd of CBS, and he can't say why he wants to be president. And so he just craters. And in combination with the rally around the flag, Carter surges in popularity. But then the crisis just drags on and on and on. And if Carter had not devoted so much attention to it, uh, maybe it could have been resolved. But he sort of let himself be held hostage by the Ayatollah by devoting so much of his time to it. And then uh, finally, uh, they ran out of patience and they launched a rescue mission in April of 1980 that ended disastrously in the desert at a place called Desert One. And they didn't have enough helicopters and a helicopter crashed into a C-130 and the whole thing ended in a fiasco. Uh, and then it, it wasn't until um, just hours before Reagan was sworn in that Carter finally got the hostages out and they weren't literally released until minutes after Reagan took the oath so as not to give Carter the satisfaction of having 
gotten them released. But he was happy about it because they came home safely. And with Jimmy Carter, it's all about saving lives. And so he felt that uh, the whole thing had worked out well, even though it was a large part of why he lost the presidency. There are differing accounts on this, uh, and you've got a bit of an account in your book. Um, Some say that Carter spent the last night in the presidency, physically in the Oval Office, under a blanket, uh, on the couch. Um, Is that how you see it? Is that essentially what happened, that he was so sorry to be giving up power and was paying so much attention to the hostages that he simply didn't want to leave the Oval Office? No, no, no. That's that's not what it was. It, it was there were round the clock negotiations, uh, and they he and several aides were in the the Oval Office uh, all night uh, because uh, they were brokering a deal, a very complicated financial uh, deal with Iran through Algeria, and there were a lot of banks that had to coordinate, and uh, he was mostly on the phone. Uh, trying to get the bankers to hurry up. Uh, and he caught just uh, like maybe, you know, less than three hours of sleep uh, on the couch at one point. Um, but, uh, you know, there were other aides in sitting in chairs and the Oval Office was actually crowded and there was never any, he wasn't concerned about, you know, giving up power and that's that's uh what may be something that is conditioned by what's going on now i mean on election night for instance he had conceded at 9 p.m you know and Uh, well i just meant that he was you know he was sad to be to have lost and that he was sad that it was going to end yeah okay that wasn't going on at all so Uh later later after he left the presidency he was he was a little bit depressed before he came up with the idea of the carter center and, you know, he had a hard time adjusting to life back in Plains, Georgia. But from the election through the inauguration, he was just working. And actually, there were a number of big bills that went through in the lame duck session, big things that he got done uh, and uh, very, very productive lame duck session. And things were so different then that he was even able to nominate Steve Breyer uh Kennedy's aide for the federal bench, and then later he went on the Supreme Court. In the same way that Carter had earlier nominated Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the federal court, and he appointed more women uh, to the bench than all of his predecessors combined times five, and basically moved the country from tokenism to genuine diversity in the government. And this was, you know, uh, something he was continuing to do with black judges after uh, he lost. So, and then he was working tirelessly to get the hostages out. What is less clear and what I deal with is, you know, how much the Reaganites were working to make sure they didn't come out before the election with the so-called October surprise. And there's some new documents on that that I have in the book that are quite interesting, but there's no way to prove that definitively. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh- You've interviewed him a number of times. You said you've met him at Habitat for Humanity um, events and builds. Uh, what's he like if when one meets Jimmy uh, Carter? Um, so most of the time uh, I, I would uh, see him at his home in Plains or his office in Atlanta. Uh, I did also go back to the Naval Academy with him for his, his 70th reunion. Um, he is an enormously complex person, and this is why he kept me fascinated and why I hope that readers will be fascinated by the layers to Jimmy Carter. Um, so I think that the person you see on television with the nice smile and the genial Sunday school teacher, that's part of Carter, but so is the very tough uh naval officer, uh, no-nonsense, impatient with um, subpar performance, uh, sometimes cold person. I didn't see, uh, only a couple of times did I see the 
snappish, peevish Carter. Most of the time, uh, he was uh, very genial and even Zen-like uh, in our conversations. And there's a modesty there that is really my dominant impression and that of my wife and son who came with me uh, a couple of times uh, to Plains. You know, until recently when he is much more frail, he could be found mowing the grass at their church. Rosalind would be vacuuming, vacuuming the, the sanctuary uh, when they're in Atlanta for a week, a month at the uh, Carter uh, Library. They decided to give the bedroom in the apartment that they're given for Rosalind's office because of the importance that she has that I described earlier. And so they sleep on a Murphy bed in the den. Uh, and so that um, modesty, I don't call it humility because I don't really think that any politician is humble. You can't really be a politician and be humble. But there's a modesty to the way they live and the way they approach the post-presidency. You know, he would not cash in. He wouldn't take big speaking fees, go on corporate boards. He's made his living as a writer, writing books about everything from, you know, woodworking to fly fishing to faith to uh, the... Uh, his childhood. His childhood abuse um, around the world. It, uh, is he reflective? Um, you say that he was maybe too reflective or at least too upfront about his reflections when he was in office. Is he honest about the mistakes that he made um, and also understanding of the successes that he had? I think he tries to be. I think he's generally an honest and open uh, and candid person. Um, and he's been very reflective uh, about his own life. Um, I, uh, I think he, in his books, he sometimes has sugarcoated the truth and I would have to sort of peel a lot of that back, especially when it came to the way he, he ducked the civil rights movement in, in the Jim Crow South. Uh, and, you know, he was in a community that was in the grip of what can only be described as white terrorism. And he didn't always cover, cover himself in glory in the way he responded. So I think he was maybe a little bit, uh, you know, less forthcoming on some of that. But um, at one point he did say to me, you know, I never claimed to be part of the civil rights movement. And uh, I, I think ultimately he was very honest with me. And I had an opportunity until he lost much of his sight just in the last year where he, he suffered a fall and then he had a, what's called a subdural hematoma and had trouble recovering. Until that, for the last couple of years, I was able to send him emails with a series of questions, additional questions to the ones that I didn't get in all of our interviews and, and, and fact-checking and other things. And I'd go out for a walk and come back an hour later and he would have answered all the questions, sometimes very briefly. So at one point after Trump was elected, I said, you know, Trump is an outsider. You are an outsider. Do you have anything in common with Donald Trump? And when I got back from my walk, I just had a one word answer. No, <laughs> but but so. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, so, so there's this picture that has become symbolic. Some say it's symbolic of Jimmy Carter. He um, there's uh, President Obama had just won and George W. Bush invited the predecessors to the Oval Office to um, to meet the new president and to take pictures and have a photo op. And there's this picture of uh, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Barack Obama. And then uh, they're kind of in one group. And then off to the side, Jimmy Carter is standing there. And this has become sort of a, a symbolic of Jimmy Carter's place among the ex-presidents and, and and maybe in the presidency also. Do you think that, that that is an appropriate way to look at that picture or is too much being made of it? No, it's an appropriate way to look at the picture. And uh, uh, one other former president told me that. I can't say which one. Uh, There's only so, five, so we could we could play around in our heads and try to get. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and... and um, so, 
Carter had fraught relationships with several of his successors for a variety of reasons that I think eventually boil down to um, uh, the title of one of my chapters, which was Freelance Secretary of State. So he's off, you know, uh, running around the world trying to solve problems and often doing so in ways that help the country and help the world. But if you're president, you know, you, you don't really like that too much. And Carter has always been candid about what he thinks about their performance. Uh, and most presidents until, you know, until uh, Obama just unloaded on Trump, um, former presidents generally don't do that. Uh, Hoover did it some on Roosevelt, but it, it's, it's not that common. Uh, and so Carter would do it pretty consistently and his uh, fraught relationship with Bill Clinton, for instance, went back to when Carter was president and Clinton blamed him for Clinton's loss for re-election as governor of Arkansas in 1980 because uh, Carter had put Cuban refugees in Fort Chafee, Arkansas, and they had rioted and Clinton blamed him for that. Uh, but then in 1994, uh, when Carter helped uh, prevent wars in Haiti and North Korea, he did a kind of a star turn, ego turn, by showing up on CNN before he reported back to President Clinton, who found that pretty unforgivable. Uh, and, and then there were other things more recently, as recently as 2017, where Carter spoke out against them. Uh, so his relationship was best with George H.W. Bush, which is a whole other story. But just to give you one part of it that's very relevant right now, the reason that his relationship with Bush Sr. started out so well is that in 1990, Carter was monitoring an election in Nicaragua. He's monitored elections in 115 countries, 115 elections in in different countries. And He's now, the Carter Center is now monitoring the Georgia runoffs in the United States. It's the first election that they've gotten involved in with in the U.S. But in that case, Daniel Ortega, the Marxist-Leninist uh, leader of Nicaragua, lost an election. And Carter stayed up all night and he convinced Ortega to relinquish power. It was the first time a communist leader had ever done so after an election. And, you know, he, he, I think if he was in better shape right now, it would be interesting to see what he said to Trump. I mean, if he could talk Ortega into it, maybe, maybe he could, could have talked Trump into it. Uh, and so that's the kind of thing that Jimmy Carter did. So there was a mix of really great stuff he did and really annoying things he did from the perspective of his successors. And that day that that picture was taken, you see uh, Obama talking convivially with with both Bushes and, and Clinton. Uh, and they're kind of at the lunch from my reporting on this. They were, uh, you know, telling uh, Obama what to expect in the White House. And, you know, the, the food is good and the this and the that. And, you know, it was a kind of a nice, relaxed conversation. And Jimmy Carter was pushing his agenda, like talking about, you know, are you going to continue Bush's policy in Sudan, you know, where, Car where Carter had been uh, uh, negotiating. Um, and he was just sort of a little, even though he actually has a mordant sense of humor, uh, which a lot of people wouldn't expect um, in private, he's very uh, driven when it comes to bettering the world and can sometimes be a little clueless about when people want to talk about something else. Finally, where does the title His Very Best come from? Um, so uh, in 1952, Carter was interviewed by Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was one of the most important admirals in American history. Colin Powell believes that the nuclear navy that Rickover established uh, won the Cold War uh, because it, it changed the strategic balance that 
Russians couldn't keep up. So this was the most elite program, arguably, in the whole military. And Rickover was this famously tough interviewer, and he would, you know, nail shut the window and tell the applicant, go over and try to open the window. He wanted to see how the guy responded. Um, or, you know, call your girlfriend and break up with her. And if you did, he, he would throw you out of the room because you were too suggestible. So he asks Carter, where did you stand in your class in Annapolis? And he says, I was 59th in a class of 850. And Rickover said, did you do your best? And Carter, you know, realizing that he had sloughed off, he was he should have been in the top 10 in his class. He's one of the brightest people ever to be president by all accounts. Uh, and he said, well, no, not always. I didn't always. And Rickover, who's a cold son of a bitch, says, why not your best? And he swivels around the chair. The interview's over. And uh, Carter thinks he hasn't gotten in. He did get in because he'd been honest. Um, but uh, from that day forward, he has done his best at anything he's doing, whether it's fly fishing or, you know, driving 100 miles out of his way in Africa to talk to one farmer or peacemaking or whatever it is. Um, and his first book was called uh, Why Not the Best? And when he got the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, his uh, astonishing level of effort and persistence was in the citation. Um, and it just, uh, it defines him. I mean, it's the reason why in, you know, into his mid-90s, he was traveling to, you know, developing countries where he was riding along rutted roads and dodging landmines, you know, in his mid-90s. Jonathan Alter, author of His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Thank you so much for joining us. Certainly check out that book and also his Twitter profile, Jonathan at Jonathan Alter. His website is jonathanalter.com. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>